Well, if you got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to conclude our series on family and generational transfer. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, I'm reading out of the Passion Translation. It says, you know that I've been called to serve the God of my fathers with a clean conscience. Night and day I pray constantly for you, building a memorial for you with my prayers. I know that you have wept for me, your spiritual father, and your tears are dear to me. I can't wait to see you again. I'm filled with joy as I think of your strong faith, here's the key, that was passed down to you through your family line. It began with your grandmother, Lois, who passed it on to your mother, Eunice. And it's clear that you, too, are following in their footsteps of their godly example. So we're concluding this four-part series this weekend in which we've been considering what it means to be part of a generational church family. And our main text has been found in Psalms 71. You got it? Psalms 71, verse 17. Says, since my youth, O God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, until I declare your power to the next generation and your mighty acts to all who are to come. And to help us visualize what that means, here's a good example of somebody from the next generation and somebody old and gray on the screen. I thought of a few of you, but I felt I might, shouldn't use your picture, okay, but you know who you are. A couple of messages ago, we explored this notion of starting strong, and we pointed out that it's up to the older generation to pass the torch to the next generation, a generation facing a lot of unique challenges in terms of their faith, stuff I didn't face. Last week, we explored the idea of finishing strong, finishing well. And we saw that we never retire from God's call on our lives, ever. No matter what our age is or stage of life that we happen to be in, we can still lead and serve and bless those around us. So this morning, we close by asking the question, how do we pass the torch? How do we pass on what we've received from God to the next generation? And by the way, we're not, we're not talking about passing on style or methodology or technique or music. Don't try to pass that on to your kids. That'll never fly. Passing on our faith, our value that God is trustworthy. He's a strong tower. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's a merciful and generous God, and he will be with you your whole life. You can put it in the bank. Build your life on that relationship with God, kids. That's what we want to transfer. You know, a big quote in our culture today in, in the West, if you want something done, do it yourself. So we live in a culture where individual achievement is pitched as the highest goal. However, in the kingdom of God, it's not like that at all. It's not an individual race. It's more like a relay race. And what's the most important moment in a relay race? As I remember in high school being in a few, it's passing the baton. And no matter how fast the individual members of the relay team are, no matter how well they run, if they drop the baton, you're disqualified. So to get us thinking about it, think of the name of somebody that's been a good influence on you. Someone, might only be one person, but who's handed something on to you. Could be a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, a coach, a mentor, or a friend. 
But that name is a concrete reminder that we're not part of an individual race. We're not here merely because of individual effort or achievement. We're here because somebody passed the torch to us. So how can people from all walks of life, men and women, young and old, pass the gospel of Jesus to the next generation? You know, some it's a biblically rooted Jesus church. That's our DNA. And just as with human cells, when good DNA gets passed down, everything else kind of takes care of itself and our bodies. Our challenge is this. How can our spiritual DNA get passed down to the next generation? Not our preferences, not our style, not our music. So to get us thinking, let me read from Paul's letter to Timothy. Scholars believe this was one of his last letters before his execution. And here we find an apostle not burdened with his own personal legacy, but burdened with passing the torch to his young protege named Timothy. I'm reading out of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 15. And he says, But you, Tim, have closely followed my example and the truth I've imparted to you. You have modeled your life after the love and endurance I've demonstrated in my ministry by not giving up. The faith you now have, I have. What I have hungered for in life has now become your longing as well. The patience I have with others, now, Tim, you have demonstrated. And the same persecution and difficulties I've endured, you have also endured. Yeah, you know all about what I had to suffer while I was in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. You're aware of all the persecution I endured there. Yet the Lord delivered me from every single one of them. For all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will also experience persecution. But the evil men and sorcerers will progress from bad to worse, deceived and deceiving as they lead people further from the truth. Yet you must continue to advance in strength with the truth wrapped around your heart, being assured by God that he's the one who has truly taught you all these things. Remember what you were taught from your childhood from the Holy Scrolls, which can impart to you wisdom to experience everlasting life through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now with Paul's words to Timothy in our minds, let me make three observations about how we pass the torch to the next generation. Principle number one, to pass the torch to the next generation, you got to love the next generation. Nobody cares how much you know till they know how much you care. See, I do a lot of communicating through text messages on my iPhone. So if you were to call somebody and leave a message like, do you want to hang out tonight? And a younger generation was texting back to you, look at the screen. This might be their answer. See, now very few of my generation with a gun to their head could translate that. But let me give it a try. How's it going? As far as I know, I'll see you tonight. But don't hold your breath. Bye-bye for now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. But it's a sort of a short and impersonal way to say, I'll hang out if I have nothing better to do. Of course, it doesn't sound like love and commitment, does it? One thing we know about Paul's relationship with old Tim is that Tim knew Paul loved him. Listen to how Paul opens that letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Timothy, my dear son, I thank God as I consistently remember you in my prayers and I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. 
So old Paul loves Timothy. He delights in him. He's overjoyed thinking about him. Maybe a year ago, I read a story by a a youth pastor, Scott Scruggs. And he said when he was a kid, he started playing t-ball. That's a form of baseball. You put a ball on a stand, and the kid, little kid, just hits it. And the field is filled with kids who have no idea how to catch a ball. So you pretty much hit a home run every time you can hit the ball. Well, when he moved up from T-ball to Little League, instead of somebody putting a ball on a tee for you, they gave the ball to another kid who stands like 12 feet away and hurls the ball at your head. And Scott said he was never a good hitter in Little League. He said he hit two for 200 on his first year. He said the scariest part of the whole game wasn't get a ball thrown at his face, but it was a walk to the dugout after the game to where his father was sitting. So Scott was wondering what his dad would think of a son who couldn't hit. But game after game, strikeout after strikeout, his father never wavered in his love for old Scotty. However, his dad could also see that Scott was a t-ball kid in a baseball world. So one day, Scotty's father came up to him and said, My son, here's a kind of t-ball you can play your whole life, and there's no kids throwing baseballs at your head. And you don't hit the ball 300 feet, you hit it 300 yards. There are challenges over land, over water that will strengthen your character or drive you insane. People call this sport golf. But don't let it scare you, my son. It's just a long game of t-ball. And Scotty said, looking back, I can see I needed direction, I needed instruction, and most of all, I needed a new sport. But mostly, I needed a love that didn't waver even though I failed. And and when thinking about how to pass the church, there's nothing more essential or more fundamental than love and support of those who came before you. It spans far beyond fathers and sons or parents and children, although those relationships are clearly crucial. It's about having somebody in your life who is an advocate for you. They believe in you. They see something in you. Now, this is down the old memory road, but for me, I can remember a high school teacher, only one, a speech teacher named Mrs. Miller. She was as skinny as spaghetti noodle. She wore big horn room glasses. She was tall, mean, just not real feminine, just tough as an old Marine sergeant. That Mrs. Miller, funny, I can remember that name. I guess she made an impression on me, you know, or I was scared of her. But she wanted me to enter a speaking contest for our school region. She said she heard me on an intercom reading devotions at school. This is a public school, but in South Carolina, you read devotions in the morning. If you were the senior class, you did it in rotation over the PA system. Can you imagine the ACLU with that today? But we did. Of course, we didn't have anybody murdered in school in those days either. I was scared to death. I told her I couldn't do it. Well, she refused to let me off the hook, and she wrote the speech, and she says, all I want you to do, come to my class after, after school. I want you to read it out loud. I thought, okay, I could do that. So I did. And that led to four more months of training and memorization and ultimately winning and going all the way to a state contest. Then I got in the JCs as a young adult, and over a short while, they had me traveling with the state president and speaking with him. 
And I actually began to kind of like it. Then I won Toastmaster speaking contest. Well, I became a Christian during that season, gave my life to Jesus, and my first pastor asked me to teach a group of teenagers in a school bus. And again, I said, no way I'm doing that. But he persisted, and I reluctantly gave in. So all through my life, it was at least one person, somebody, who saw potential in me that brought me ultimately to this stage today. I would never have chosen that for myself, but somebody believed in me. How about you? That's the real question. And while this has always been the need, probably never more needed than right now today, more and more young people are coming from broken homes, unsafe family situations, and a void of love, trust, and somebody to advocate for them. And while more and more young people are facing challenges in terms of identity, sexuality, vocation, it's not easy to do, nor how to make it through. And while great numbers of young people after high school leave church who were raised in church, it is not because we are too trustworthy with people who are uncertain or too gracious with people who are struggling or because we're too loving to people who strike out. No, it's because we are definitely as a church not. That sadly has not been true, but it should be true. So in order to pass the church, we have to love the next generation, even if it's just one person. And hey, older generations, you don't have to be perfect. You just have to start somewhere, somewhere. You know, parents, investigators, children's ministry, or ministry to students, to young adults. Seek out opportunities to lead a small group or to help with one or to mentor somebody. You know, whether you're 18 or 80, you can love the next generation. That's where we start. Somebody has to believe in you. You remember, you know, Casey Tree, the old redheaded Casey from Seattle? Well, uh, he was telling me his story. Maybe he shared it here over the years. I'm not sure. But he was a drug pusher and a drug user. And he came up to the judge and he had a choice of going to prison or going into drug rehab and wisely he chose drug rehab. And running that rehab for the state was an African-American former Marine who had also been in federal penitentiary for drug abuse and use, but had since recovered and now headed a recovery program for young adults. And when old skinny Casey walked in, he looked at him in the face, and that Marine said, Big Red, you can change. And he believed in that kid, stayed with him, and changed his life. Who, that guy would never know, not now he would know in heaven, that that Big Red loser was able to travel the globe and minister to hundreds of thousands of people and touch hundreds of thousands of life. And as far as that old ex-Marine knows, he just touched one. You don't know. You have no clue what touching one life can do. Way beyond you. Just one. Number two, to pass the torch, you can't just share your faith. you got to share your life, at least most of it. There's a wonderful phrase in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says to Tim, but as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. And no, no, notice that, that little phrase. Because you know those from whom you learned it. That's what makes it convincing. 
And Paul isn't just talking about his own relationship with Timothy. He's talking about Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and then his mother, Eunice. There were men and women of all ages who invested in Tim in his journey through family, which gave him convincing reasons to continue in what he had learned. You know, for me, it was my grandparents. How about for you? They had a major impact on me. And I'm sure when they were taking me to church or reading the Bible or getting me involved, I'm sure they thought, brother, is this wasted effort? No rebellious high school teenager. You've got to be the hardest group in the whole world. But it was working. And, you know, I probably didn't show it, but those seeds went in. And then God will always create a Jonah hotel, fish hotel for you. And all of a sudden, what you learn kind of comes back and you reach out to God or you drown, you know. And, and so their, their effort in my life wasn't wasted. But they never got to live to see the fruit of their investment. So, Grandpa, I hope you and Grandma are happy, okay, doing the best I can. Which means those who follow in your footsteps, you know, they've got to know more than your advice, just your intelligence about how to live. They got to know stories about how you've lived, and that means some of the good and some of the bad. Nobody is going to be impressed with just your highlight reel. Everybody grows and gets more transformation off of your fumbles and failures. And that's when you have confidence in what someone's telling you when they're honest to say, I really dropped the ball here. And I really didn't do this right, whether it's in marriage or money or with the friends you choose. That gives you credibility with people when they're listening to you. You can't just share your faith. You have to share a part of your life. You know, you talk with people in an open and transparent way. That means uncensored, no sugarcoat on your life. Years ago, Ron Corzine and I were talking to a mentoring class, and I never will forget, we shared all the dumb things we had been taught in church and the stupid things we did and thinking, you know, the wrong thinking we were taught and how to decide what was important and what wasn't. That would have been nice to know when I was 18, but nobody ever did. So we just went down the lane of all the dumb things we did and were taught and what was important in life and what wasn't important in life to give them a little better start so they didn't have to make the same mistakes we made. And Paul did this with Timothy. Imagine the conversations that were never written down in the Bible they had. Paul, Paul writes about a thorn in his flesh, and scholars have been guessing about what that was for centuries. But Tim, he knows because he was with Paul. Paul calls himself chief of sinners. We only know Paul from his letters. But Tim knows what Paul's struggles were. I don't. He doesn't say. But old Tim does because he was with him and Paul shared his life with him, not just his faith. So the emerging generation doesn't need another voice that only wants to share their faith. They need an advocate willing to share their life. And just like Timothy, they need to know your way of life, your purpose, your faith, your patience, your love, your endurance, and even some of your suffering and failure. They, they basically need to know it ain't easy. Life is not easy. Being a Christian is not easy. And, and you know, if you want to be happy all the time, sell ice cream. That's all I know to tell you. <laughs> but they need to know your life. So pass the torch to the next generation. You have to be willing to share your life. And I've tried many times on this stage to share things in my past about doing it wrong. 
whatever it was, whether it's marriage or money or kids or life or relationships, lots of stories to tell. They're not all highlights. Some of them are lowlights, but it's life. But I learn more from that, and I trust somebody who's telling me a little inside information that they aren't perfect, that everything wasn't great, but that God was generous and gracious and merciful and a God who restores and a God who can make up the difference. And I found hope in that. I don't know about you. I found hope in that. It wasn't, I didn't have to perform. And God loved me just as much on my bad day as he did on my good day. So number three, to pass the torch, you've got to find your victory in the victory of another. Anybody remember the movie about a racehorse named Seabiscuit? Uh, let me, uh, you can Google it later, but Seabiscuit came from no hybrid stock, was too small, and yet became racehorse of the year and became a phenomenal, this little horse called Seabiscuit. So they made a movie about him. And in the final scene, Seabiscuit and his jockey, Red Pollard, they're racing for the first time after both had been seriously injured. And he had also been on Seabiscuit and knew the potential of this horse better than anybody. He just needed a chance to show what he had. Well, they're, they're running dead last, oh, Seabiscuit until another rider, George Wolfe, who had been the more successful rider throughout his career, slowed his horse down so Seabiscuit could catch up to him. But that rider sacrificed his own position in the race and any hope for personal glory in order to see his friend ride on to victory. That means to pass the torch, we've got to find our victory in the victories of the next generation, even if it means slowing down a little bit, even if it means not winning every race or receiving all the glory. See, to those of us who are more seasoned and experienced following Jesus, especially in the Summit family, there are younger people in this church and our city who may be thinking of or have already given up on church, but they need us to slow down, meet them where they are, look them in the eye, remind them that God loves them, God has a purpose for them, I believe in you, and I'm ready to watch you run. So it's not about whether or not this church will look different, dear Lord, because it will look different. Our styles, our methods, our technology, our music, our ways of doing church and worship, all of those have and will change over time. Truth will never change, but all the rest of it will. And this is about whether we're willing to put our church in the hands of the next generation to find our victories and the victories of those who will lead this church for years and years to come after us. Not many churches in history have figured out how to do it, or at least they haven't been willing to do it. But that's what we have to do if we're going to pass the baton to the next generation. Every day, you can drive by churches that were once thriving communities. And you know, if 1958 ever comes back, they're ready. They're now old, stale, irrelevant, and lifeless. Well, we want Summit to be a thriving community of grace and transformation and inclusion where people of all background, all stages of life come to learn about one thing that we're always about, and that's Jesus. And to do that, we got to remember it's not about a particular style or strategy. It's about doing whatever it takes to pass the gospel on to the next generation. See, generation gaps are self-imposed, and they're caused by failure to understand, embrace, and communicate it's the attitude of older people today is, if it's not like we do it, it must be wrong. That's horrible. That's terrible. 
Today, people over 40 have tried to segment kids by category. Generation X, Generation Y. Well, how about Generation Smart? Smarter than we used to be. How about Generation Impatient? Little patience for people who just don't get it. I remember when my granddaughter Mia was four, she could, she could take my phone. She'd already memorized my code and she could download an app for herself. And then I would get the bill and say, I didn't buy that kitty show. She did in the back seat. And she could fix my technology when I couldn't do it. How about Generation Facebook? Many older people try to block it or control it. Well, good luck. The government of Egypt tried and the kids won. Instead of giving a laundry list of what's wrong with the kids today, try to embrace the new generation as the next generation and teach them what you've learned. Be an example of a generational bridge, not a generational gap. Remember, it's our responsibility to bridge the gap. So what do the new generation people embrace? A couple of thoughts. They embrace new. They embrace now. They embrace next. They love change. It means cooler, better, faster. They embrace technology. They, some of you are still on a landline. They embrace online. They embrace speed. They embrace each other. They embrace the easiest way. They embrace texting. They embrace games. They embrace photos and videos. They embrace uh, uh, value and free time. And to the older generation, it's much harder to embrace what is than what was. But it's way more profitable. The new generation dresses differently, more relaxed. They speak differently, less or zero political correctness. And they communicate differently. They would rather text than talk. Young people eagerly accept what's next rather than fear change. They line up outside of the Apple store for hours to get the newest and latest product. And they're leaning away from professional towards friendly. Well, Rick, is it right or wrong? Well, most cases, neither. It's just different. But different is not always bad or wrong. It's just not the way you did it. Sometimes it's better. So if you want to win, befriend youth. And youth, if you want to win, be smart. Befriend some experience. Don't fight each other. Embrace each other and change the world. The greatest gift in a Christian life it's not your individual legacy or award. It's the gift of passing the torch successfully. It's to have somebody stand by your casket and say, because this person was in my life, it's richer, it's bigger, it's brighter. It, it has more potential than ever because they were in my life. That's passing the torch. They may have thought they didn't accomplish much, but they passed something on to you. What are you passing on to the next generation? And young generation, there's a lot of mistakes and a lot of things we would all like to do differently. Find somebody older that you trust, that you respect, and find out what they wouldn't do again. See, I, I, I want to learn from what you did wrong. I, I don't, well, Rick, I want the experience. Well, I've already watched what the experience did to my friends. So I've already seen the experience. I don't need to experiment. I can learn from you. Lord Solomon say, I walked by the field of a lazy man. It was covered in weeds. The walls were all broken down. And I consider a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands, and you come to poverty. Well, he said, I walked by and saw the experience of another guy. And I said, I don't want that in my life. 
So I got to get up every day and hustle and dream and do something to achieve something better. See, I want to pass the torch to the next run. And you don't know what potential lies in people. Sometimes you think I'm wasting my time. George Arugio and I were talking after the service at nine o'clock and after his case for the Bible, sometimes he said, I feel just like you, like, did it make any difference? Did anybody learn anything? Will it change anybody's life? And sometimes and many times you don't see the results till way later, maybe not till eternity, but I guarantee you it's worth it. It's the gift of seeing God work in the life of another. So if we learn anything from this second letter to Timothy, it's that the real tragedy for Paul would have been not slowing down and bringing young Timothy alongside to make sure his legacy wasn't just church structure or worship style, but it was a person who could carry the gospel in his own way to the next generation. Psalm 71 again and last, verse 71. Since we were young, O God, you have taught us. And to this day, we declare your marvelous deeds. Even when we're old and gray, don't forsake us until we declare your power and your glory to the next generation and your mighty acts to all who are to come after us. And Lord Jesus, today we pray you will help all of us do this. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.